Amen. Amen. We're going to have a seat. Good morning and welcome and hope you had a great uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, Ryan Sickinger, are you in here? In the very back, Ryan and Alexis had their baby. So we've been a little slow in getting that out to you all because of the holiday weekend, but if you see him, you can congratulate him and then pray for him and his wife because they're not going to sleep for the next couple of months. Um, but hopefully you've had a great Thanksgiving, and uh, certainly as Pastor Brian was talking about, not only enjoying the feast and the food, but certainly reveling in our great Savior and our great God uh, during this time. And we want to continue to do that, and we want to open God's Word, and I'm going to ask you to turn uh, to John. 753, which is really uh, the last verse of John chapter 7, uh, and then the beginning of chapter 8 begins there. Uh, and as you're opening your Bibles to John uh, chapter 753 or chapter 8 for the sake of uh, brevity, most of you, as you're flipping there or get to that page, uh, you're going to find brackets, or you're going to find some line, or you're going to find some footnote or some designation that's going to tell you something along these lines right here uh, in my Bible. It puts it right above of the text itself, and it says this, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. And so this morning, before we do anything else, what we have to do is we have to address this question of whether or not this text even belongs in our Bibles, which you might find yourself going, wait, what did you just say? Yes, I think now I've got your attention and you're going to pay attention as we talk about this textual concern around John 7:53 through 8:11. And so here's how I want you to think of this, loved ones. Imagine you and I are in an airplane and we're taxiing out to the runway. And as we're getting out to the runway, the pilot notices uh, that there's some debris on the runway. Uh, now, I've never flown an airplane, but my father-in-law is an airline pilot. I know that debris on the runway is a bad thing and that has to get cleared off uh, before uh, you can take off. And so we need to clear the debris. We need to clear uh, the litter on the runway, so to speak, uh, before we can take off. So I'm going to ask you to just bear with me for a moment as I try to both succinctly and briefly explain why these brackets appear or line or footnote or whatever you have uh, in your Bible and how it is that you and I should be thinking about them. And to start, uh, here's what you have to understand. Let's understand how the Bible was written. Okay, let's understand just for a moment how the Bible was written. Because every book that comprises the New Testament was written by different authors, and the original intention was that it was a standalone document. So think of Luke, uh, even in his two volumes that he writes to Theophilus, or think of Paul as he's writing to the church in Corinth, or the church in Rome, or the church in Colossae, or wherever it might be, or even Timothy or Titus. Right? He, they wrote to an individual or to a group for a specific purpose. And as those originals would go to their intended audience, uh, what they would do is scribes would copy uh, those originals. And then um, as more and more copies were uh, created, they would also be distributed amongst the believers until over time, all these different copies begin to be uh, collaborated or put together into something that uh, began to resemble, resemble the New Testament that you and I uh, know and understand and see today. And these copies formed uh, what we would refer to as manuscripts. Now, we don't have any of the original autographs from the New Testament authors, but we have a huge collection of manuscripts from which we can look at. And if you hear that line, you're like, wait, we don't have any of the originals? 
Uh, how can we know that it's true? Maybe even you hear that and that undermines some confidence in biblical fidelity or the reliability of the Bible. Let me just give you a couple of other contemporary examples that uh, give us some perspective and should build, uh, not decrease our confidence in the Scripture. So uh, l- let me say, and we'll play a game. I'll say a name. You raise your hand if you know who I'm talking about. Aristotle. Ever heard that name? Okay. Uh, you know how many manuscripts we have of Aristotle's work? Zero. We have five. <laughs> We have five manuscripts. Now check this out. You know how old most of those manuscripts are? They're about a thousand years after he lived. Okay, let's play the game again. You ready? Plato. You know how many manuscripts we have of Plato? Like seven, eight, nine, somewhere in that range. Again, about a thousand years older than Plato. Now, I've just never heard anyone come and say, we can't possibly trust those manuscripts from those men. We don't question the veracity or the truthfulness of those. Okay, you ready for this? New Testament. You know how many manuscripts we have? About 5,700 manuscripts. That's just in the Greek. That's not talking about the Latin or the Syrian or the Coptic or any of, uh, of those other uh, elements or languages that, that we could uh, reference. You know, how, you know when most of those were written? within the first 30 to 100 years of the original. So we have all kinds of, 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 of evidence that should give us great comfort uh, with respect to biblical fidelity. And so the issue for us is when we look at this phrase, the earliest manuscripts don't include this account. Now, I will tell you there's plenty of other documents uh, that, that include this account, uh, that, that many of the, the early church fathers uh, referenced this account, and I will say a number of older manuscripts include this account here in in John chapter uh, 7:53 and into uh, the early part of John chapter 8 but the earliest manuscripts do not include this account, which is why it requires that we pause and try to consider why that is. Now, I want you to, to, to keep in mind there's only two places in the New Testament uh, where we have more than a word or a couple words or a phrase or a sentence where this is even the case. Uh, right here in John is one of these places, and at the end of Mark's Gospel, Mark 16, 9 through 20, is the other place where we uh, have a similar issue at play. So we're not talking about a lot of the New Testament. We're talking about two places in uh, the New Testament. And so the question for us is how should we think about this text? Here's a few ways that I think are helpful for us. First of all, virtually no one argues over the historicity of this account. And what I mean by that is is you're not really going to find anyone that's questioning as to whether or not it actually happened. Pretty much everyone believes this account took place. Someone didn't make it up. Someone didn't combine a couple different accounts to try to create a new or a different story. Uh, we, we have all kinds of different documentation that we can trace back to the middle of the first century around this account. There's not, there, we're not going to debate the historicity of this. Secondly, the early church circulated this account and at least at some level trusted this story. But that is distinct from putting it into Scripture, right? So the question is inspiration. Uh, That's part of what's in view here. And then for some reason, which there are a variety of possibilities, although we don't know for sure, for some reason, it was excluded from the earliest manuscripts that we have. Not from all the manuscripts, just the earliest manuscripts. Uh, but it, it ultimately ended up in the majority of uh, the, the newer manuscripts, and obviously it's still placed in our Bibles today. 
And so it requires a level of caution. How should we think about it? And I'm going to cheat. I'm just going to steal a quote here from one of the commentaries that I use because it just said it far better than I possibly could. So listen, I think this is the best way for us to think about this text. The author says this, This account should be treated as a text on probation, given full membership without loss of rights or privileges, yet serving as if on an extended apprenticeship. Just as a person on probation is prohibited from serving in certain authoritative capacities, so also might this text be prohibited from making its own contribution to a doctrine or theological issue. It can be used in collaboration with other accounts in a secondary and supportive role, but should not serve in an independent and isolated position of authority for the church. In short, what the author is trying to say is we don't want to derive new theology or new doctrine uh, from this text, uh, but we can allow it to be supportive uh, and speak into uh, the areas that God's Word has already spoken into uh, in other parts of Scripture that aren't questioned. So I don't think it's unreasonable for us to see this as Scripture, but we do want to be honest about its limitations and some of the concerns that come with it. And so we're not going to treat it as anything that's new or distinct from other parts of the Bible. Uh, But I think when we get into this, what you'll realize is all over the place, uh, even in John's gospel, there's plenty of support for what we see here. Fair? Is that fair, church? All right. Um, and, and, and if you have questions about this, I'm happy to talk about it. If you want resources or articles or books, I mean, you can drill down deep and plenty of people over history have on this text and on textual criticism and the inspiration and transmission and all these other things uh, that theological nerds love to talk about. And you might glaze over as I start saying those words. Uh, so we're just going to get to the text. Uh, but if you want some stuff on that, I'd be happy to send it to you. But let's focus our attention now on the text. Let's take off uh, in the airplane, so to speak. Here's the main idea of what God's Word is going to draw out for us this morning. It's this, that Jesus is the sinless judge who bears the condemnation of his own law. Jesus is the sinless judge who bears the condemnation of his own law. And so I would encourage you to read uh, God's Word with me. In fact, why don't we uh, stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. I'd encourage you to follow along as I read this aloud to us. And this is God's Word for us. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and sat down, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. It's kind of an interesting way to respond, right? And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. This is God's Word to us, loved ones. Why don't you take a seat? And I'm going to pray for us and ask God to have His way with us uh, as we walk through this. Why don't you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord Jesus, for Your great kindness towards us. God, we thank You that even in a text that has concern and, and pause and hesitation, 
Um, God, that You and Your Spirit will come and minister to Your people. And so we thank You, God, that You are beyond and above uh, some of the reservations and some of the issues that we might have and might carry. And we pray that Your Spirit would come and do uh, Your work in and amongst Your people. So God, we pray that we would be willing to listen and hear from You. God, that as Your Spirit speaks and prompts and challenges and convicts and, and opens our eyes to see that we would respond accordingly. God, as always, we want to pray for another church uh, in town. And God, we pray for Refuge Church and for Pastor Ryan Bestelmeyer. We thank you for this sister church of ours, another EFCA church here in the area in West Albuquerque. Thank you for the good gospel work that they're doing. And God, we pray that you would be moving and working in them as well. In the same way that we long for you to move and work in us. So Lord Jesus, come and have your way. Come and do your good work. Come and do the things that only you can do in and through your people. We pray this in your name. And all God's people said, Amen. All right, well, the title of the message this morning is The True Judge. Uh, the True Judge. And, and what we see going on at the beginning of this account is, is everyone has scattered, uh, although they come back uh, in the morning to the temple and the people are coming to Jesus and he sits down and he begins to teach them uh, in verse 1 and 2. And then he's interrupted by the scribes and the Pharisees who are bringing to him this woman that they've caught in adultery. Uh, and, and let me just say this here at the outset because I want to make sure we're clear on this. Uh, but I don't want us to miss the emphasis because because it's not about the woman. This is not about the woman. This is about Jesus. And this is about the religious leaders putting Jesus on trial. The woman is simply a pawn that they are using in their scheme to try to indict Jesus uh, so that they can bring some kind of charge or accusation against him. In fact, this is what we see in verses 3 through the first part of verse 6 or 6a is an attempt to put Jesus on trial, right? This true judge... And yet here the religious leaders are wanting to put him on trial. And the issue at hand is the woman has been caught in adultery. And so they bring this woman to Jesus, and they say, we've caught her in adultery. And then notice specifically what they say. <clears throat> Look at verse 5. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Now, what should stand out to us? Well, there's a couple things that should stand out to us. First of all, in the law, the law was very clear that if you were caught committing the act of adultery, you were to be put to death. You can go to Leviticus 20 or Deuteronomy 22, and you can see that uh, bore out very, very clearly. Uh, but, but what is bore out very clearly in those texts is that both the man and the woman were to be put to death. Is someone noticeably missing in, in this equation? Where's the man? Right? Like, what's going on here? Hey, we found this woman. Well, if you found them committing adultery, you found a man too. Where's he? Yeah, conveniently, he was left out of the equation. Also, interestingly enough, in the law, it says to put them to death. But in the law, it doesn't say to stone them. It just says to put them to death. In fact, the only time that they were to stone them was specifically if it was a virgin who was betrothed to another. In fact, in the Deuteronomy text, it goes on to say that. Now, it's possible that was true of her, although these guys have already taken some liberty with the law already, so it's fair to assume that it's possible that there's a little bit of a distortion of God's Word, kind of like Satan in the garden type thing that's at play with these religious leaders. See, because they're willing to bend the rules to their advantage when it was convenient for them. It's almost as if they're saying, um, we can pick and choose which commands of God we want to adhere to, and we can ignore the ones that we don't want to adhere to. Let's stone the woman. 
But let's say nothing of the sin in this man. Can you see the hypocrisy in them? Can you see the double-minded nature of what's going on here? And yet if we're honest, right, let's just be honest, church. Can't we be guilty of doing the very same thing? Right, well, where, where you and I will hold fast to the Scriptures that we treasure, that we value, that we love, and yet we're a little bit looser, we're a little bit freer in the areas that we struggle with or we find to be a little bit more problematic. Right? At best, there's an inconsistency. At worst, there's a hypocrisy that's at play. And here, there's the, 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 these religious leaders, there's an inconsistent sexual ethic. We'll stone the woman, but we're going to say nothing of the man. And it's easy for us to be critical of them, but come on, church, we have that same hypocritical or inconsistent sexual ethic in our day. Because we'll look at some forms of sexual sin and be very harsh and critical of it. But then there's other forms of sexual sin where we're just a little more laissez-faire and casual about Because we'll hammer homosexuality. That's an affront and undermining what God intended for marriage. And yet, we won't have that same type of passion and conviction around pornography, or around cohabitation, or around the very sin of adultery, or whatever it might be. Yet any distortion of God's good intent of both marriage and our sexuality is a sin and should be treated accordingly. Or we're inconsistent when it comes to justice. We decry the injustice of murdering unborn babies. And we should. We should speak out on that, and we should advocate on that. And yet sometimes, sometimes, uh, if we're just honest, we can be quite apathetic about the injustice and the exploitation of the very women who are pregnant with some of those babies. And it's hypocritical, right? Or in the church, I mean, this plays out in in a number of other ways, right? We'll tolerate gossip under the veil of concern for others so we can pray for them. I'm going to slander you so I can pray for you. I don't think God's impressed with that. See, because we can't cherry pick where we want God's Word to hold us accountable and where we don't want God's Word to hold us accountable. We've got to be submitted to all of it. And the religious leaders here are clearly cherry picking, picking and choosing what they want to do. And of course, all of this is so that they can indict Jesus. There's an attempt to put him on trial. In fact, notice two things specifically about this. First of all, in verse 5, their appeal to Moses. Right? Now, in the law, Jesus, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. And then this is really rich right here. So what do you say? They don't care what he says. They're not interested in him speaking truth or enlightening them. In a very twisted way, the religious leaders are trying to get Jesus, the very author of the Scriptures, to undermine the Scriptures. What incredible arrogance to assume that we would know better than Jesus about his own word. I mean, sometimes I laugh at situations like this, this in the Bible. And I mean, Jesus just could have been like, guys, I wrote it. Where do you think Moses got it from? He got it from me, right? And yet he's, Jesus graciously doesn't just run to that place. But this appeal to Moses is really just a distortion of the Scripture to justify their behavior, which is to find a way to bring a charge against Jesus. And loved ones, any attempt to use the Scripture to justify something in our lives is a fool's errand. Because God isn't going to be uh, fooled about His Word. He's not going to allow His Word to be uh, distorted or manipulated. Right? He hasn't forgotten what He has said. He knows exactly what it is that He means in His Word. 
And so when you and I make appeals to the Scriptures, when you and I make appeals to the Word, it should be for clarity and it should be for discernment. It should be for leading and for wisdom and for guidance and instruction in our lives. It should never be to justify or rationalize or to explain away my sin or my personal preference in life because I don't want to do what God has told me to do. And yet if we're honest, right, we do this. We'll take Scripture, we'll use Scripture, really we'll manipulate or exploit Scripture to rationalize our sin. Here, here's Exhibit 1A. God knows my heart. God knows my heart. Yeah, I know He knows your heart, which is why in the Scripture He told us that our hearts are deceptive and wicked and we can't trust them. That's what He tells us in Jeremiah. The inclination of your heart is not towards God, it's away from God. Well, David was a man after God's own heart and he made mistakes, so God knows I'm going to make mistakes. Yeah, David made mistakes, but David was broken and contrite and repentant about his mistakes when confronted with not those mistakes, but that blatant sin in his life. Don't try to twist the Scriptures to get them to say what you want. Loved ones, we've got to listen to what they are saying and live accordingly. They are not appealing to Moses. They are appealing to themselves under the guise of appealing to the Scriptures. And it's an attempt to put Jesus on trial and to justify themselves. And it is a fool's errand, and the same is true for you and I in our day and our life if we attempt to do the same. There's an appeal to Moses. And then we see the motivation for that. Look at verse 6. Here's why they're doing this. This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. They have a desire to accuse Jesus. No interest in learning about the law. No, no, no interest in, in learning about Jesus. No sense of how should we handle this. I just want to put Jesus on trial. And here's the irony of this situation. Is that Jesus is the one that's on trial. The accusation of the woman was nothing more than a pretext to bring a greater accusation against Jesus. Let me just try to say this plainly. Be very cautious in attempting to put Jesus on trial. We should tread lightly in thinking that God owes us a response, and we should seriously consider the ramifications of what it is to put God to the test. There's an attempt to put Jesus on trial, but here's the deal. You don't put the true judge on trial. The judge is going to put you and I on trial. And that's what Jesus does here in these next couple of verses. In fact, look at verse 6b through 8. And I just wrote this down, the prerogative of Jesus to judge us. There's an irony that the religious leaders want to put Jesus on trial, and guess who ends up on the stand? Yeah, you thought you put God in the dock. Guess what? He just pulled a reversal, and now you're on the hook, loved ones. There's two things. Well, let me just read. Let me just read so we can capture what's going on. Right here, the, Here's Jesus sitting teaching. And this crowd gathered around him. And the religious leaders interrupt and they bring this woman to him. And they say to him, Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? They said this to test him. So they might bring a charge against him. And then what does the text say next? Jesus bent down and with his finger he started to write in the dirt. What kind of response is that? Like what's he doing here? And then notice what it says here uh, at at the uh, beginning of verse 7. As they continue to ask him. right? So he's down here in the dirt. Well, come on. Will you respond? What do you have to say? What would you say for yourself? And he just stands up. Let him who is without sin be the first to cast a stone at her. Back to the dirt. 
So, loved ones, we need to look at what Jesus has said and, bo- and what he is doing, because I think both of them are speaking into his prerogative to judge us. Let me actually start first with what Jesus says. Look at verse 7. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Jesus is telling us that he is the sinless judge. He's the sinless judge. Hey, any of you that are without sin, you go ahead, you feel free to pick up a rock and begin to stone her. See, there's a standard of sinlessness, there's a standard of innocence that's required to bring about any kind of judgment. It's any true judgment. The righteous one, the sinless one, is given the prerogative, is given the right, is given the position, is given the authority to render judgment. And Jesus is the sinless judge. But Jesus is, is, is distancing or distinguishing himself from all the others. Because what, what, what's going to happen? In a moment, they're all going to walk away confronted with what? Their own sinfulness. Hey, anyone who has no sin, you feel free to pick up a rock and throw it. Uh, yeah, I've got sin too. Which is why they're all going to walk away. Right? They're going to be reminded of their own guilt. And what will remain true of Jesus is that he is the only one left that is without sin. And here's what I think is fascinating about this moment. Jesus rightfully could have picked up a, a, a rock or a stone and thrown it at that woman. She was guilty, and under the law, she deserved death. And we'll get to that here in a few moments. But, but, but what I think is so intriguing is Jesus could have picked up a rock and thrown it at everyone else present too. Because they were guilty of violating God's law. That they stood condemned before a righteous and holy God. Right? These are some of the major aspects of the gospel that begin to unfold. Jesus is addressing the sinfulness not only of this woman, but of the Pharisees and those in the crowd around him and the subsequent penalty that is due us. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 6, right? That the wages of sin is, tell me, it's death. That's what our, the, the punishment of our rebellion before God warrants us. And the only way to remedy that is a sacrifice, but not just any sacrifice, but a flawless or a perfect or a sinless sacrifice. And this is what Christ is, flawless, sinless. And the implications of this are enormous. Because in this moment, here's what Jesus is doing. He's blowing right past the religious posturing or the posturing of the religious leaders. He's blowing right past that, driving into their hearts and addressing the very sin within them. He's getting at the problem of their sin. Because Jesus' concern, loved ones, is for our hearts, not simply for our behavior. Our behavior is reflective of what's going on within our hearts and our souls. But Jesus wants to get to the root. And so here's what he's essentially saying to the Pharisees, but he's also saying to you and I as well. The issue of your sin is just as lethal and just as problematic as the sin in the woman. Your sin will kill you. Your sin will alienate you from God. Your sin will will create death in the same way that hers will. And yet I wonder, I wonder, are we as concerned about our own sin as we are about the sin that we see in others? Am I hearing what Jesus is really saying, or am I more like the Pharisees just trying to get my thing? In fact, here, let me ask you a few questions, and you just wrestle between yourself and the Lord on these items as to whether or not we're really concerned about our own sin in the way that we're concerned about others' sin. First of all, this. Am I as grieved and angered at the ways that I rebel and I reject God's ways as I am at the ways that others reject and rebel God's ways? 
See, it's one thing to be burnt when someone else does something that God doesn't want them to do, but are you just as burnt when you do that? Secondly, am I as bothered at the ways that I wrong others or I sin against others as I am when others wrong me or sin against me? I mean, that's probably the greatest evidence as to whether or not you really believe this. Because when someone wrongs you, what's our response? Can't believe it! The nerve of that guy! But what happens when it's on the other side? What happens when you and I are the offending party? Oh, man, the justifications start to flow. Well, you know, it's not as obvious as it seems, and all of a sudden the benefit of the doubt just starts showing up everywhere because I'm not really as bad. It's It's not what you think it is. And yet do we offer that same freedom to others when they fail us? Or how about this? Am I I as honest about my own sin as I am about the sin that I see in others? I'm willing to point it out in others. Am I willing to point it out in my own life or let others point it out in my own life? Am I willing to own and admit the sin that's within me? Do I see the destructive reality of my sin and how it harms others in light of, uh, or in the same light that I see it in others? Do I see how my sin is destructive? Do I see how my sin damages relationships and people? and undermines the gospel and detracts from God's glory. See, because Jesus in in this statement is, is concerned about the deeply rooted issues of sin that corrupt all of us. Because the gospel is not merely self-help instructions. The gospel is good news. It's good news that that, that you and I are freed from the sin that corrupts us, that it's pervasive within us, and yet Jesus died to free us from that. That's the good news that the gospel offers and the hope that we can be liberated from sin, both in its corrosive effects. Think of rust eating away metal and how sin just eats away at our soul, but also from the punishment or consequence of sin, which is death. This is actually what Paul talks about in Romans 6. In fact, let me read to you part of Romans 6. I'm going to read a chunk of it, so bear with me. Flip over if you want. I'm going to start in verse 12 and read a better part of the remaining or the remainder of the chapter, starting in Romans 6, verse 12. Here's what Paul says. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Listen to what he says next. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Right? Sin has no dominion over us. That's not a future thing. It's a present thing. And yet, far too often, we don't live like that. We don't believe that. Paul continues, verse 15, What then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you're present or if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. The sin no longer has rule over us. Sin no longer has dominion over us. Now, 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 the whole tension of Romans 6 and 7 is back and forth between we know this truth and yet we struggle to live out this truth. And so I don't want you to be crushed under the weight of some kind of sinless perfection that's, that, 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 that could never be true of us this side of eternity. And yet there's, there's a truth that Paul is saying is that sin does not have dominion over you anymore. In fact, notice what he goes on to say. Jump down to verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin, that's a definitive statement that is rooted in the past. 
He's not saying, hey, eventually, when you've been set free from sin. He's like, no, no, Jesus has already done that. Now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, which is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right? This leads to sanctification. This leads to eternal life. And so what does that look like? How does that play out? Well, I think one of the ways is what we see in Hebrews 4, for example. Right? That we have a high priest who can sympathize with us in our weakness. But that high priest isn't like us because that high priest didn't sin. So Jesus can sympathize with us in our weakness, but he cannot sympathize with us in our failure because he is without sin. And then the text goes on and it tells us what? That I can draw near to the throne of grace timidly? Nope. Passively? Nope. What's the word? Boldly or with confidence. Like, I can come in with confidence before God. That's what it is to be freed from sin. That there's confidence before God. And that's true because Jesus is the sinless judge and he will apply his sinlessness to us. Praise God for that. The prerogative of Jesus to judge us, first of all, because he's the sinless judge. Secondly, look at verses 6, 7, and 8. And this is kind of a wild thing that Jesus does here, right? So here they are. Uh, What do you say, Jesus? And he goes down to the ground and he starts to write in the ground. And what do we all want to know? What did he write? Like, what in the world is he scribbling in the dirt? Okay, listen, listen, church, listen. If the author wanted us to know what he wrote, he would have told us. That's not the emphasis. But there is an emphasis. And the emphasis is this, how he wrote. So what's the emphasis that the author gives us in verse 6? He tells us that he wrote with what? His finger. Wrote with his finger. Is there anything else in the Bible about someone writing with their finger? Whoa, there's a couple of them, right? We think of Daniel 5. Except in Daniel 5, it's plural. There's fingers and a hand. Anywhere else that there's something written with a finger? The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, both in Exodus 31 and in Deuteronomy 9. Moses goes out of his way to tell us, and I quote, they are written with the finger of God. What is Jesus doing here? He's telling us that he's the author of the law. That's what he's doing here. Jesus is telling us, guys, I wrote this. It's mine. And it is remarkable and stunning. And the the religious leaders absolutely miss it. Right? As they're attempting to position him against Moses, Jesus actually drives it further by insinuating that he's the very author of the law. He's like, I gave it to Moses. I am the very finger of God that wrote this. And don't miss this, right? As the Pharisees are challenging Jesus with the law, they're challenging the very one who wrote the law. I mean, it's crazy. Let me try to put in perspective how outlandish this is. And I understand the the, the illustration is greatly flawed, but it's the best that I could come up with. Imagine if you could, if you can get in the time machine and you could go back to the late 1770s and you could find yourself in front of the founding fathers and the authors of the Constitution and you begin to argue to them why the Constitution is unconstitutional. They'd be like, who are you? You, you, You didn't write this. You're not the author of this. You have no bearing on this. Get in your time machine and go away. I don't know if they'd say that last part, but they'd probably say everything else. 
And it's a microcosm of what's happening here in John 8. Jesus is the author of the law. And the Pharisees are unaware that the very author, the very architect, of the very law that they allege to uphold is giving them a lesson in the law itself. And they have no business challenging the very one who wrote this law, the law of God, with his finger. And yet I would just ask you, how do you approach what God has given to us in his word? Do you approach it as something that's negotiable? Do you approach it as something that can be reworked or adjusted or modified? Or do you approach it as the very Word of God that's binding on our lives? Jesus is the author of the law. He is the sinless judge. And because of this, He has the prerogative to judge you and I. And so notice judgment is coming in verse 9, 10, and 11. But I want you to notice that this judgment is issued through the law of Christ. Here's the final thing that we see. We see the merciful and firm law of Christ. So there's the religious leaders barking at him, barking at him, riding in the ground. He stands up. Hey, if any of you have no sin, be the first to cast a stone. Back to the ground. And then, I love verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Right, a little bit older, a little bit wiser. They're like, I know where this is going. We're out. Right, and then just off they go. And then this, this note here that is so profound... And Jesus was left alone. No one else left with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Three things I want you to see here in this final point, and then we're done. First of all, with respect to the merciful and firm law of Christ, just make note of this. There's no other judge. There's no other judge. Now, I didn't say that there's no judge. There's no other judge. There's only one Right In Jesus' statement, let him who's without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. When you get to verse 9 and the author is saying, Jesus was left alone, do you know what they're saying? They're saying, there's no one else who can judge. In walking away, what, what, what is implied by everyone else there is that they're incapable. They're unqualified to ren- render judgment. But Jesus hadn't gone anywhere. And in a dramatic sense, what the author is telling us is that there's no other judge. Not that there's no judge. There's only one judge, and his name is Jesus. And it is stunning in this moment how Jesus can simultaneously care for sinful people while, while at the same time not, not condoning or approving of sin. There is no other judge because Jesus is the judge. Loved ones, Jesus is the judge. Now, I would argue that is really, really good news, um, but I would also argue that that's kind of terrifying news. See, here's the good news. The good news is this. There's only one judge, so I don't have to win the approval of the world or my parents or my children or my siblings or my boss or my teacher or my coworkers or my neighbors because they cannot render an eternal judgment against you and I. Further, I'm not sure that we could trust their ability to render a true and fair judgment, but we absolutely can trust that Jesus will render a fair and true judgment. And so the good news of this is is we know that, that only one can judge us, and the one who will judge us is going to be fair, he's going to be true, he's going to be right, uh, but that's also kind of the problem, isn't it? Because when you start thinking about your life, you think about my life, all of a sudden you're like, oh, it's going to be fair and true. Gulp. Because Jesus isn't going to think that your sin or my sin is cute. He's not going to wink at it. 
He's not going to listen to us try to explain why it's different for me or all the other uh, rationalizations or explanations that, that we want to give to Him. See, listen, if, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, what you need to know is that He is the only judge. That He's it. And you don't get to make the rules. You don't get to determine how the judgment goes. You don't, you, you don't get to tell Him uh, your opinion or how you think it should go. In fact, just consider this for a moment. Imagine you were to walk into any courtroom in America and you were to burst through the doors... Let me tell you how it's going to work in here, judge. And then you begin to lay out to the judge what it's going to look like in their courtroom. How does that go for you? You're in contempt of court. That's how that goes for you. Okay? Uh, That does not play out well. And the same is true, loved ones, the same is true with God. There is no other judge, and we need to understand the fullness of his ruling. And we see two aspects to that in verse 11. Here's the first. When Jesus asked the woman, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. See, when it comes to the merciful and firm law of Christ, there's no other judge. But we see this secondly, that there is mercy for sinners. Praise God for that. Praise God for that, that there is mercy for sinners. And, and, and loved ones, what I need you to know is Jesus' statement here, he, he's not excusing sin, he's not minimizing her sin, um, this is not this woman getting away with sin, it is the provision of Jesus and his mercy to a sinner. This is good news that there is mercy for sinners. I, I don't think you heard me. Because if you did, there wouldn't be two or three half-hearted amens. Or you don't believe this. Because this is the good news that there is mercy for sinners. Amen? Could you imagine if this wasn't true? Just just for a moment, try, try to imagine if this wasn't true. If there wasn't mercy for sinners. Now, man... Maybe I'm reading into the text more than is fair, but I think there's something in this woman's response. I know she only says three words, but I think that last word is really, really crucial. When she says Lord and not teacher and not man and not whatever other word that she could have said. And I say that because there is only mercy for sinners that is available to those that call him Lord and all that comes with it. The mercy for sinners is found in calling and testifying to Jesus as Lord. Not in us liking Jesus, but wanting to live autonomous from Jesus. Not us saying, hey, Jesus, uh, I'll give you the lip service, but I'm going to do my own thing. The mercy for sinners is found in us truly submitting ourselves to the Lord. Because the author of life and the author of the law is going to be the one who's going to bear the punishment of the law, which is going to bring about death for the author of life. And so instead of receiving judgment, the judgment that we deserve, right? And this woman was guilty. She deserved to die according to the law because of her sin. She was guilty, just like you and I are guilty. Don't miss that. She instead will be covered and clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. It's 2 Corinthians 5 in in, in story form. Right, where Paul finishes his argument, He, God, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin, so that in Him you might become the righteousness of Christ. Jesus uh, bears our sin. We are covered with the righteousness of Christ. 
And this is why Jesus can look at a woman who's clearly guilty and say to her, I don't condemn you. He's not winking at her sin. He's paying for it. He's saying, you are not going to die because I am. That's what he's saying here. There's mercy for sinners. But he doesn't stop with neither do I condemn you. Notice his final line here. Go and from now on sin no more. There's sanctification for sinners. There's sanctification for sinners. And if you're like, sanctify what? Sanctification is us growing in Christ-likeness. It's us being conformed to the image of Jesus. It's growing more and more in a desire to honor Jesus and looking less and less like our former sinful selves. See, because Jesus, not only does He not condemn her, but He calls her to live a particular way. He tells her to sin no more. He has an expectation that upon receiving mercy the mercy of God specifically, that it's going to alter how she lives her life. It changes how she lives. Now, for some of us, we think of sanctification and we think that I have to work really hard to prove to God that I'm deserving of His mercy. You clearly don't understand mercy. It's you not getting what you deserve. It's not us proving something. Sanctification is us responding to something. It's because God has loved us and been so gracious and merciful to us that we respond by wanting to honor Him. This is what you do for people you love. I hate buying gifts, but I love my wife, so I will happily buy my wife gifts. I don't know that that applies to very many other people, but it definitely applies to my wife because I love my wife. And when we love God, we want to do the things that please God. That is what sanctification is. We love Him, so we want to honor Him. And Jesus is telling us, sin no more. Don't do this. And praise God that He's the one that's at work in sanctifying us. It's not just us left to ourselves to work hard. In fact, this is what Paul tells us in Philippians 2. Let me read Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Of course, this comes on the heels of that incredible text about Jesus and His humility. Paul then says, right on the heels of that, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in, as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Listen to what he says. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Yeah, see, Mike, we got to work for it. we got to work for it. And he's not done. Listen to what he says next. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. See, he rightly captures the tension of what sanctification is. Us wanting to honor God and praise God. Him working within us to accomplish that. And so there is sanctification for sinners. Because God expects that when His mercy shows up, we are transformed and changed. Because Jesus, the sinless judge, is going to bear the condemnation of His own law so that we can be restored and reconciled to our Father and brought back into right relationship with Him. It's absolutely remarkable what Jesus is doing here in this account. And I can't think of a more fitting conclusion than for us to come to the Lord's table and to remember not only what Jesus has done for this woman, but what Jesus has done for you and I. And so, loved ones, as we come to the Lord's table, uh, we find a number of things at the Lord's table. Let me just remind us of, of a few of these items. First of all, what we find at the Lord's table is a reminder of God's mercy. At the Lord's table is a reminder to you and I that God is merciful to us. 
that while I deserve death and destruction, just like the woman was guilty, we're guilty, I deserve death, Jesus' body is broken, His blood is spilled, and we don't get what we deserve, which is the very definition of mercy. But instead, we receive a righteousness that's holy God's, which is the definition of grace. We're reminded of God's mercy. We're also reminded of the exposure of our sin. I think it's hard to have God's mercy in view and not be reminded of the ways that we're sinful. Right? Part of the Lord's table is that we would examine ourselves, that we would examine ourselves individually, that we'd examine ourselves corporately. Now listen to me. The exposure of your sin and the exposure of my sin is a grace for us. Because in God exposing that, we can confess and repent and God cleanses and God forgives and it's God's love for us that brings that into the light. And so as you come to the table and as between yourself and the Lord, as you begin to confess and repent and God is exposing sin to you, that is His kindness to you. And at the Lord's table, we find a reason for hope. <clears throat> we have a present hope in a Savior that cleanses us from sin. But we have a future hope that one day we're going to share this meal with our Savior face to face. And when we share that meal with Him, we will be freed from the brokenness of sin. We will be freed from the captivity of the curse. Right? We will dine with Jesus and we will do so in the perfect righteousness because He has perfected us. And that's part of what we're remembering but also looking forward to in this. <clears throat> so the Lord's table should remind us of the incredible hope that we have in Jesus. Right, the sinless judge bearing our condemnation of his law. And so as you come to the table, here's my encouragement, that you would come honest about your law. There's no pretense in the table, loved ones. So you come honestly, you come authentically, you come transparently uh, before the Lord, being real about where you are. And as God exposes that, you praise God that he sent his son to bear your wrath and my wrath so that we could be restored to Him. That is what we remember when we come to the table. So here at Faith, we practice what's called an open communion, which means you don't have to be a member of Faith Church to partake. Uh, but we would ask that you would hold to the biblical uh, limita limitations of, of the Lord's table in that you are a follower of Jesus. So if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, we're thrilled that you're here. Thank you for being with us. Um, maybe you got drug along by a friend or family member. I know it's Thanksgiving weekend, so maybe you're like, I didn't want to be here. Well, we're still glad you're here. Thank you for being here. Um, but if you're not a follower of Jesus, we would ask respectfully that you refrain from the table. Although a far better option is for you to give your life to Jesus and for the first time to participate as a son or a daughter of the King. Uh, but we have three tables up front. We have one in the back. If you need a gluten-free option, that's available here in the gold tray. Uh, and we'd ask you to grab the elements, take them back to your seats, and then we'll partake together uh, corporately uh, as a family here in a moment. But let me invite you to come to the table and to do so honestly and transparently before our good God. Why don't you come, loved ones?